Well, this morning we are uh, <clears throat> studying the life and ministry of Jesus as a church. We've been studying it uh, since the beginning of the year, but this morning's kind of a unique morning. And uh, as a <clears throat> group of churches in the Wawasee area, We've all kind of called this Sunday a bit of an open house Sunday where we would invite people uh, to come and we're all preaching on the same passage of scripture together. And uh, the, the ministerial is a group of pastors from Syracuse, uh, North Webster, just the Wawasee area. And we all, you know, kind of the closed hand, open hand thing, right? For those of you who are part of our church, <clears throat> there's closed hand things of the gospel that if you let go of these things, you're not a Christian anymore. The deity of Jesus Christ, penal substitutionary atonement, his work on the cross for us. And, and these things we don't let go of. And in fact, we'll swing the fist over these things and fight for these things. But then in an open hand are, are other issues of, of doctrine and of practice. And uh, maybe the type of music you sing. Maybe, uh, maybe other minor issues of doctrine that aren't primary. And, and we might have disagreements in this area with other churches. And that's okay. Because we agree on these things. Amen? And so as a sign of unity, we just, we really have this conviction that the, that Jesus Church, capital C, is stronger when the local churches, small C, uh, can, can do ministry and do things in unity together. And uh, so we're excited about that. And so this morning we're going to be in, we're going to skip ahead a little ways in our series. And uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, if you've got an app on your phone, whatever you've got with you, why don't you open up to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to dive into uh, this passage of Scripture together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you uh, for Jesus. I thank you for his work on the cross for me, and I thank you for uh, other churches in our area and in our community <clears throat> who who love you, serve you, who are faithful to you, and that we can partner with them to, to encourage one another and to do ministry and see that the church is, is a lot bigger than just here at Wabasee Bible. But we're just a small outpost of your kingdom. Um, Father, I pray this morning uh, that as I teach, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would speak to, to me and, and work through me, uh, that you teach me even as I teach and uh, work on my heart even as you're working on the hearts of each one here. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects, and uh, pray instead, Holy Spirit, you would move in a powerful way uh, to make us more and more like Jesus. Show us your love for us this morning. Show us your grace to us and, and show us the gospel. Father, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first, though, in Jesus, and uh, we pray all this through him. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 starts this way. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Drawing near to who? Who do you suppose they're drawing near to? Well, to Jesus, right? The tax collectors and the sinners. Now, when I'm reading that, my first thought is, okay, how bad did people view the tax collectors that they're, they're zeroed out among all the other sinners, right? I mean, it's like the, the tax collectors had no good reputation. And, and obviously the sinners would have been just anyone who... Who sins? That'd be any of us, right? And, and they, they draw, they're drawing near to Jesus. The people who are unseemly, the people who maybe nobody else would draw near to, they're hanging out with Jesus, whereas maybe any other religious leader wouldn't have. And in fact, I don't think they would have because look at the religious leaders. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. The Pharisees and the scribes, those are the, the religious leaders of the day. 
Those are the leaders of the the local church, in a sense, in that day. And they start grumbling that this Jesus guy is hanging out with, just fill in the blank, those people. Can you believe he would hang out with them? What, What is wrong with him? You don't hang out with those people. Here's what they said. They said, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Well, curiously, the Pharisees believed this lie that many of you maybe believe, and it's going to form a central truth for us as we go forward this morning. And that lie is this, that, that the people God is most pleased with or most loves are the people who are most lovely and who get it right. Do you ever feel that way or think that way or even kind of hear that whisper in your mind or in your ear that uh, God's got to be really mad at me because I screwed this up? He's got to be so furious. There's no way he would take me back. There's no way he really loves me. I mean, I don't know if I'd even consider going to church until I got this thing cleaned up in my life because I know all those people got it together and and I clearly don't. And that's a lie that the enemy would use and would tell you and would tell all of us to discourage us from following Jesus and drawing near to him. And in fact, it's the lie that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day had bought into that, that you're, you're only really good enough if you measure up. And so I can't believe Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and he's eating with them. Those people don't measure up. What's he doing with them? And they, they illustrate the lie that so many of us often find ourselves buying into. But the truth The central truth of this passage, we're going to cover all of Luke 15 this morning. The central truth is this. It's completely opposite of that. The central truth is that God seeks us. He draws near to us and he loves us, not because we're good, but because he's good. You you, got to get that as we go forward because it's going to shape everything that we see in in the text this morning. God doesn't love you because there's anything lovely about you. He loves you and he cares for you because everything is lovely and good about him. Do you get that? It's not because you're good that God accepts you. It's because he's good that he accepts you as a sinner, as someone who's who's jacked up and messed up. He accepts you because he's good, not because you're good. And we're going to see that over and over here. And in fact, Jesus, in trying to demonstrate this truth to the religious leaders of the day, he decides to tell some stories or some parables. Parable isn't really a a word you hear outside of church, is it? You hear that very often in your everyday life. Let me tell you a parable. No, let me tell you a story. And Jesus tells some stories. Verse 3, so he told them, this parable. He told them this story. And in fact, he's going to tell three stories to illustrate this truth. The first one is this, the lost sheep. Jesus says, what man of you, if you had a hundred sheep and you lost one of them, that you don't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. You know what's amazing about Jesus is when he tells these stories, when he interacts with people, he he just does it in a really natural way. And he draws people into his life and and he relates to their life. He's like, man, if you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, you can't tell me you wouldn't go chase them down. You you can't tell me that you just let them go. 
Because you, you love your sheep. You care for them. You, you don't want to let that one go. In fact, you'd probably leave the other 99 behind because they'd be okay by themselves as a group. And you'd chase after that sheep until you found it, wouldn't you? That's what he says to him. It's, like, it's just so common sense. And when he found it, when he has found it, verse 5, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when you, because you, you lose your sheep, when you find it, what are you going to do? Are you going to scold the sheep? You're going to get really angry at it? Stupid sheep, I hate you. Pow, right? Now you're going to be like, yes, I found my sheep. You put it over your shoulder, you take it back with you. And you what? You rejoice. <clears throat> and in fact, not only do you rejoice, he says, but when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says to them, hey, rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. I found the sheep that was lost. I found the sheep that ran away, that had strayed so far away from me that I couldn't find it. I found it. Now I have it. Let's have a party. Now, what did the sheep do to deserve that? Nothing. In fact, the sheep ran away. The sheep took off. Now, you know what that sheep would do if he was somebody in our culture? Because each of these parables, what they model is they, 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 they point to God's goodness and God's love for us, right? That's what they point to. And so when we see this man who loses a sheep and chases after it, what, what he's saying and what the Pharisees would have put together by the end of all this is he's saying, uh, that, that's God who loves me and would chase after me. And I'm one of those sheep who have gone astray. In fact, uh, Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that we have all gone astray. We, we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've each one turned to our own way. We've sinned. We've taken off. And the lie that the enemy would tell you is that, well, because you screwed up, you just better stay away until you get that cleaned up and then reveal yourself so God would come get you. Or then go back to him. Get it cleaned up first. But what happens? No, God chases after you. And he comes to get you because he loves you. And the other lie that you would hear is, well, yeah, but if, if I turn back, you know what's going to happen? Because, see, here's the thing. Some of us, we, we had... In this room, I didn't, but some of you had, had a father maybe who didn't model God the Father very well. And, and maybe he was cruel to you. And you know, when you screwed up, when you came back, you, you had hell to pay for it, right? And so when I screw up, when I run away, when I turn back, I don't want to do that because I don't know what's going to happen. And the enemy would, would lie to you and tell you, yeah, don't turn back. Don't go back because God's so mad at you. But the reality is, no, when, when you come back, what happens? What does the man do after he finds his sheep? He doesn't scold him. What's he do? He throws a party. He rejoices. Why? Because the sheep's good? No, because the man's good, because he loves his sheep. He says, let me tell you another story. Well, in fact, he finishes this story saying, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Don't buy into the lie that, that God only accepts those who, are, who already have it all together. That he only helps those who help themselves. The opposite is what's true. God only helps those who are helpless. And in fact, he, he welcomes all who need it to be put together so that he can help put it together. And there's joy in that. There's rejoicing in that for those when we repent and we turn back to Jesus. Jesus then tells a second story, the, the lost coin. He says... You know, I told you about the man and his lost sheep. So let me tell you another story. What about the woman? She has, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, 
does not, does not she light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, here's what you need to understand. When, in, in the Greek, when you read this, it's uh, that silver coin is a, a drachma, which would be like a denarius. It'd be like one day's wages. Now, would normally, would a woman be looking for her savings? Or, or maybe let me say it this way. What type of woman in the Bible would be looking for her savings, for her money? Probably somebody who's a widow who didn't have a husband to care for her and to, and to provide for her. So all she has is what she has. Maybe what she's inherited. Maybe what little she's been able to earn. And so I think it's likely that the woman he's referring to in this parable is probably a widow. She has very little to her name. Ten days worth of wages. Imagine what do you make in ten days? What do you make in one day? Multiply it by ten. Then you've got it, right? Now imagine that's all you have to your name. You have 10 checks for the last 10 days of work, and that's all you have. That's it. No more. And you misplace one of those checks. And that's all you have to depend on for the future. What are you going to do? You're going to tear everything apart to find that check because that's going to mean a ton to you, right? And this woman, in the same way, she's tearing her house up. She's lighting a lamp. She's sweeping everywhere trying to find this one coin because it was such value to you. And well, when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I found the coin that I had lost. I found the coin that I lost, the one I couldn't find. Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, sometimes maybe you get caught in this cycle too. You you have messed up, you have sinned, you have screwed up, and you've wandered slowly but surely far away from God. And you're like the lost coin that's swept under a pile of dust in the corner and you're like, ah, nobody's, I'm just going to hide here. Nobody's going to find me here. And quite frankly, I know that God probably doesn't even care anymore. I'm so far away. I'm just going to, I'm fine. The reality is though what happens, God's like, the woman is like God. She represents God in this and He he tears up everything to find you. Why? Because he loves you and he cares for you. And he chases you down like he chases Jonah down in the Old Testament because he loves you. Because there's anything good about you, not apart from him. It's because all of his goodness that he loves you and he chases after you. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. How many times when you hear the word repent and you hear repentance, your first thought is, that's a joyful thing. Boy, that makes me happy. Let's repent. You ever hear that? You heard that sermon yet? You're here today. Because repentance means it yields joy. And there's joy in repentance. Can repentance be hard? Absolutely. But the end result is what? Joy of God in you. And over you and over your life and joy for you that he shares with you. Well, now we get to the story that's maybe one of the most uh, well-known parables, the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. There's been all kinds of literature based on this parable. There's been uh, movies based on this parable. There's, you, you probably know it. Maybe you've heard of it. The story of the prodigal son. And just somebody, can you sum it up for me? What happens to the prodigal son? There's this son who, he's rebellious, and what's he do? 
he just runs away, right? He runs away. And then what's he finally get? What's he finally do? He comes to his senses and he comes back, right? And the father loves him and he rejoices that he comes back. And we think, man, this story is about that. I'm glad I'm not as bad as that son. Like I didn't take everything and run away. We're going to see this in a second. I, I didn't do nearly as bad as him. And we, we think that the story is about the son. But think about this. Jesus is telling three stories in a row. So let's back up. In the first story, in the story of the lost sheep, who's that story about? Is it about the sheep or is it about the guy who lost the sheep? It's about the guy who lost the sheep, right? And about his goodness and his love for his sheep. So, okay, let's go to the coin. The coin story, is it about the coin or is it about the woman who lost the coin and searched for the coin? It's about the woman who lost the coin and searched for the coin. Now you get to the story of the prodigal son, or as I would say, the lost son. And what I would submit to you, as we dive into really this primary part of our text this morning, is that this story is not very much about the son. It is very much about his father. It's very much about the father who lost his son. That the primary character here... The primary character as we move forward here is not the son. The primary character, the central character is the father. We get to verse 11 and he said, And there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Do you know how insulting this statement would have been? He says, give me my inheritance now. It's like a J.G. Wentworth commercial. It's my money and I want it now. Right? You ever seen those people yelling out the window? That's this, that's this kid. He's like, hey, Dad, I got an inheritance coming, right? Yeah. Well, give it to me now. You know what that's all akin to saying? Dad, why don't you just die so I can have my money? Right? Hand it over. Right? Come on, old man. What do you got for me? That's basically what he said. I mean, think of how insulting that might have been. What if one of your kids came to you and maybe you'd be patient like this father, I hope so, but they came to you and and there was just this, you knew they really didn't care for you. They just cared about what you had for them. They didn't love you. They just loved the way that you provided for them and gave to them and probably would have broke the father's heart, don't you suppose? But look what he does. Remember, this is about the father. And he, the father, divided his property between them, between his two sons. This tells me a few things about the father. Just this, this, this passage, just this, this verse right here. First, he's a good dad because he had managed his money, his finances well, and he actually had an inheritance to give his kids. Right? That's not to say you can't be a good dad and not leave an inheritance, but Proverbs says that, it, Proverbs thirteen twenty two, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So this guy's been a responsible man, a, a godly man who loves his family, who's, who's put up a, an inheritance for them. He's, he's saved to provide for his children. Not only this, but he's very, he's very gracious, and he loves his sons, even in the face of being insulted by, them, by one of them. You know, his son said, I'd rather you die so I can have my money, is basically what he says. But what's the father do? He still graciously loves him and gives him an inheritance. And the other thing I see here is maybe a lot of wisdom in the father because maybe he had struggled with this son 
his entire life. And this, this kid had just been a little hellion his entire life and just trouble, right? And finally, maybe the father says, fine, I'm going to give you what you want because I know that's what it's going to take to break you and win your heart back. Sometimes be careful about what you ask for, what you covet. Maybe God will give it to you. That may not be a good thing. Well, he gets his inheritance, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Here we see a little insight into the character of the son again, right? Because it says the son was so grateful for his inheritance, he stuck around and he served his dad and, and loved him and cared for him. And he, he just really, man, he, does it say that? No. It says not, a, not many days later, like a few days later, he takes off. He's just like, I'm out of here. He wasted no time. Kind of like the Steve Miller band song, right? He took the money and ran. He was just gone. He packed up everything. And not only did he run, but he, he journeyed into a far country. He, he went as far away as he could get from his father. He took all the blessings that the father would pour on him and said, see ya, I'm gone, I'm running. This again reminds me of a passage I quoted earlier from Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And we look at this kid and we go, he's a brat, isn't he? What a brat. And then we look in the mirror and go, oh, I'm that brat. <laughs> because I take the things that God gives me and what do I do sometimes? I just, I run and I rebel and I take off the opposite direction. And we're just like him. We take off to a far country. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that at one time we were separated from Christ. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were far off from God, just like this son. We get to verse 14 of the, the story Jesus is telling. Jesus says, he took off to a far country, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. How much was everything, do you suppose? How long did it last? Well, I think you get a clue when you look down later at his older brother when he responds. He talks about how he had been for years with his father and hadn't rebelled against him. And he had always been there. And this guy probably had a good inheritance. And he had spent years away, I believe, squandering it. Just doing whatever he wanted. However he wanted. Lavishly. In fact, you know, that's what prodigal means. I left a definition for you on the front of your insert this morning. And prodigal means to to be lavish or recklessly extravagant with something. And so this kid is called the prodigal son, not because he runs away, but because he's so reckless, extravagant with what he had. He, he just, fine, yeah, I'll take three of those, five of those, six of those. That'd be fantastic. And you notice I titled this message, is it, is it really the prodigal son or are we looking at the prodigal father? Because when you look at the definition truly of prodigal as someone who lavishes things extravagantly, who with reckless extravagance, really, there's a negative side of that and there's also a positive side. There's the negative side of it referenced for us in the younger son, but there's the positive side we're going to see 
in the Father who lavishly, prodigally lavishes riches upon his children whom he loves, lavishes grace upon them, even in the midst of their rebellion. Well, while he's away, he'd spend everything, and then a famine arose. So what's that tell you? Now his poverty isn't just a little poverty, it's greater. Why? Basic economics, right? Supply and demand. There's not enough food, but there's a greater demand. Price goes up. I don't have any money. Now I have less money because <laughs> everything's more expensive. And he, he began to be in need. Some of your translations might say he began to hurt. So what's he do? Does he go back to his father? Because he knows his father's a wealthy man who would accept him back and love him. What's he do? No. He says, I can do this on my own. I'm not going back. There's no way I'm showing my face again. I, I'm independent. I'm strong. Maybe he's an American. And he's going to work his way through it, right? I mean, we, we have that bent, don't we? And that can be a really good thing, but it can be a really bad thing. And, and what's he do? He, so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, likely a Gentile, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs, an unclean animal. He should have been just totally and probably was even repulsed by this. And in fact, he gets out there, Jesus says, and he's feeding the pigs and he's so hungry. He's like, I wish I had the slop from the pigs to eat. How many of you have pigs? Anybody? We had them when I was young. We lived on the farm. And you know what we fed the pigs? Besides, obviously, they got feed. But you know what else went to the pigs? Gross leftovers that nobody wanted. The slop, right? It got piled into a bucket and then we just threw it over the fence. I think I've told you this story before when I was little. I had one, one instruction when we lived on the farm, and my mom had this nice Tupperware bowl, and I was to throw the leftovers over the fence to the pigs, and, but don't throw the bowl. So what I did, I threw the whole bowl over, and it got chewed up by the pigs, and they just eat anything. And, and this guy is so hungry. He's so in need. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. That's what his self-reliance got him, nothing. By relying on himself, he found himself completely alone, far off from his father, far off from anyone who loved him. But remember his father? Remember his father? Verse 17, look, but when he came to himself, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? When he came to himself, in other words, when he came to his senses, you ever pray that for somebody in your life or in your family, or maybe people have been praying it for you, that you'd come to your senses, that you'd come to see things clearly, that you'd be honest with yourself that you'd recognize that this thing you're trying to do totally on your own, flat out, is not working. In fact, Timothy talks about this, or Paul talks about this to Timothy, excuse me, he writes a letter to him and he says, the Lord's servant, Timothy was a pastor, he said, you as the Lord's servant as a pastor must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. You must be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correct your opponents with gentleness, And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. 
And what we're seeing here, when Jesus says he came to himself, he came to his senses, we're seeing the beginning in this young man's life of repentance. Of repentance. That word Jesus had already mentioned in the previous two stories, right? How there was joy over anyone who would repent in heaven. There was joy and and a joyful celebration welcoming those who might repent. And so he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He says, first, I've sinned against heaven. All sin, loved ones, all sin is first and foremost against God, not against other people. Do we sin against other people? Absolutely. But first and foremost, every sin is against God. And then it's against others. And so you may think, I've never sinned against God. Have you sinned? Yeah, then you've sinned against God because all of it is against him. And what we see here is the gift, Paul told Timothy that, that repentance is a gift of God. And I want to answer this question as we, as we finish this passage, because we see it clearly. What is repentance? If there's joy in repentance, what is that? I've heard that word. I've heard people pound the pulpit. I've heard people yell it at other people, repent, right? And it sounds like such a negative, harsh word, but is it? Well, here's what repentance is. First, it starts with this. It's recognizing I'm going the wrong way. Recognize I'm going the wrong way. The son here, he finally came to his senses and it took him until when? When he hit rock bottom. Did it have to take that for him to repent and to recognize he was going the wrong way? In his life, I guess it did, but it wouldn't have had to for him to repent. Some of you, listen, you're, you're on a path where God's calling you over and over. to. He, he's, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're, you're, you're going the wrong direction. You, why do you keep going that way? And he's going to let you keep going and keep going. And maybe you even said, yeah, I know. See ya. And you keep going, right? And then what's going to happen one day, though? You're going to hit bottom. You will. You will. It's kind of like my dad used to say to me when we were little, there's an easy way to do this and there's a painful way. The easy way is my way. The painful way is your way. Which way is it going to be? And God kind of says that, right? Like that you could turn back now. You could turn back now. Do you really want to go through all that pain? When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. Do you really want to go through that? And finally you'll hit bottom. And, and that this this kid had finally hit bottom where he's out with the pigs and he's like, the pig slop looks better than what I'm eating this afternoon. And he comes to his senses and he recognizes he's gone the wrong way. What's going the wrong way? Well, it's our sin. It's our rebellion. It's our foolishness turning from God. Well, then there's a second piece. That's the beginning of repentance. But then the second one I would contend is what repentance literally is. It's I change my mind. Change my mind. I change the way I think about this. In fact, the word repent, the word repentance, if you literally translate it out of the Greek, metanoia, it's it's a change of mind. And true repentance is when I see things the way God sees it and I change my mind. And that's repentance. Repentance. But true repentance, if I've really repented, what's going to happen? I'm not going to go, oh, yeah, yep, that's right, that's wrong. I haven't changed my mind yet. Why? How do I know that? Because I haven't turned around. 
I'm still going this way. If I really change my mind, what am I going to do? What am I doing? And I'm going to turn and I'm going to go back. Repentance is recognized. I'm going the wrong way. It's changing my mind. That's the heart of it. And then the evidence of it is to turn around and go the other way. I've used this illustration before, right? Like the kid in junior high running down and shooting at the wrong basket. Everybody's going, stop, turn around, wrong way. And he finally, finally turns around and everybody's screaming at him, right? That's repentance. It's to turn around and go the other way. And look, at that's what, this, that's what this son does. He goes, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's thinking to himself, I'm going to say this to my father. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You have every right to just disown me and be done with me. And in fact, I'm okay with that. But just treat me even as a servant because it's so much better than where I've been now. I know, there's, I know I'm going to get punished for this. I know it's going to be hard. I know you're angry with me. You have to be angry with me. Just, just hire me as a servant then if you won't take me as a son anymore. The younger son here sees God as he might in his image. Because the son is thinking like, if that had happened to me, if it was my son who took off and left, like I would be so angry with him. And when he came back, I would, I would never want anything to do with him. It'd be like, I would just shun him and that's it. See ya, you're done, you're cut off. And many of you, you're like, you're like that. You, you view God in, in your image because that's what you would do to someone who sins against you. You'd be like, I'm, I'm done with you. No, cut off, forget, forget you. But the reality is God isn't in your image, you're in his image. And what God would do is what you should do. Don't project who you are onto God. Let him project his character onto you. And God is a God who's lavish in his patience and his loving kindness toward us that would lead us to repentance. We picture him in our image. But in fact, see, the father's not going to disown him as a son. He's not going to treat him only as a servant. Well, here's the turn then. Here's where he goes the other way. Verse 20, he rose and he came to his father. And as he's going back, he's got to be thinking in his head, he's going to be so mad at me. He's going to be so angry. But while he was still a long ways off, maybe dreading in his gut what was going to happen when he saw his father's face. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and got really mad, right? His father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him while he's a long ways away. Some of you, you have been or you are a long ways away and you need to know that that God is a God of grace and love and patience and he sees you a long ways off and he has compassion for you and he loves you. Does he love your sin? No. Does it anger him? Does it? Yeah, it hurts him. But he loves you. And when you repent, when you turn, you change your mind and you go back, he feels compassion, he runs and he embraces you. See, this story isn't about the son and his sin. This story is about the father. 
your story. It's not about you. It's about your heavenly father, your salvation for those of you who have trusted Jesus. It's not about you. It's about God's unbelievable grace toward you. Remember Ephesians 2, I read this earlier. Remember that you were at that time, you were at one time separated from Christ. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The father runs toward his son. He closes the gap. He embraces him while he's far off. And the son starts a speech, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I, I know there's no way you'll take me back as your son, but can I, can I just come and work for you at least? What's the, what's the father say? He's like, stop. Hey, get a robe. Get a robe for him. How about a, get, get new shoes for his feet. Get something for him to put in his stomach. This is my son. What do you think his servants were thinking? Yeah, this is, his, this is your son who totally took everything and lost it all and totally stabbed you in the back and ran away. What are you doing loving him? Sounds a lot like the Pharisees saying to Jesus, what are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? But the father says, no, no, listen. Bring him in, kill the fattened calf, okay? We're, we're having steak dinner tonight. I'm throwing a party because my son who once was far off is now here, once was lost, now is found. Once was dead, now he's alive. And this is a time for great celebration and great joy. And loved ones, when we repent, when we turn, when we, when we recognize we're going the wrong way, we change our mind, we turn back to Jesus, there is great rejoicing that we would do that because our God is a God of love who loves you and cares for you. He's a good dad. And he welcomes you back with rejoicing. And, and for those of you who never trusted him, you need to repent and turn to him and saving faith because the reality is there comes a day when his grace does run out. And if you fail to repent, you fail to turn to Jesus, you're left to your own destruction. In fact, you're left to where God's kindness would turn to wrath for sin. His older brother wanted nothing to do with it. And some of you are hearing this and you go, that's too easy. I don't know. I don't know if God's really a God of love. I don't buy that. I don't know. His older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and said, what's going on? What are these things? Is dad having a party? He's kind of old to have a party, isn't he? Like, what's going on? And he says to him, well, your, your brother's come. How do you think he felt immediately? Yeah, that snake who stole dad's money. Stole the inheritance. Your, your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. No. I can't accept that you just take him as he is. You, you know what he's done. He... He's never conformed. He's just always been rebellious. And you welcome him? Well, the father comes out and entreated him. He goes out to him. He begs him. He says, come in. He earnestly, anxiously, that's what entreat means. He pleads with him. Come in. We're having a party. Why don't you come join us? Your brother's home. This is a great day. But he answered his father. He's like, look, dad, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. 
You never threw me a party. You never gave me a young goat. You never let me invite my friends over. I've always, always, always obeyed. I've, I've been to church my entire life. I've given. I've served. I've, I've never had something just huge that I screwed up. Why does he get more honor than me? And this, this what we're going to find out is this older son has just as much sin and rebellion as the younger one, doesn't he? His sin is just conforming morally to what he thinks is right. And he finds his righteousness and his goodness in that. He feels good about himself. The other, the other kid, the younger one, went off to, to kind of explore life and, and self-discovery. And just, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever feels good. And they're both equally wrong. Because what's true is that their father loves them both. And, and what the father would desire is for them simply to come to him and enjoy him. See, he says, but when the son of yours came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. All that's mine is yours. In other words, son, get your eyes off yourself. Don't find your identity in your self-righteousness. Find it in what Jesus has done for you. He said it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who challenged him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's like, you know what? You guys knew the truth. You're missing it. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on God. Get your eyes on Jesus. Loved ones, here's the deal. There's, there's basically, the Bible distinguishes two groups of people. Those who know Jesus Christ and those who don't. Those who have repented of their sin and turned from the way they were going and turned back to Jesus. And those who continue to go the wrong way. And it's very simple to be in the other camp and be God's child rather than simply his creation going the wrong way. And it it's to repent. It's to turn. And there need not be fear in that. In fact, there'd be great rejoicing in that if you would. And those of you who are in Christ, if you've trusted him for your, for your salvation and trusted him with your life, and yet you continue to stray, turn back. God loves you. He loves you. And there'd be rejoicing for you to repent. Amen? The central story this morning is not that God loves us because we're good. He loves us because he's good. Let's pray. Uh, We'll take our offering. We'll close in song together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us in him and through him. And I pray this morning, Father, for, for those maybe who've never experienced your grace, maybe never repented, that today might be the day they would do that, that they turn to you in faith, that, that Holy Spirit, you would work in their heart to change to help them recognize their sin and the way that they're going is wrong. Help them to change their mind about it and that that change of mind would, would prove to be true and would yield them turning and going the other way and truly repenting. Father, I pray for those of us who know you. Help us to be quick. Martin Luther said that the Christian life is one of continual repentance, always turning back to you and away from ourselves. Help me to repent as I need to and help each of us to. Knowing that you love us, that you're a good dad who welcomes us back with open arms. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us in Jesus first. We pray all this through him. Amen.